0: Coco Seco! Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 130, and it's the first episode where we pivot to the story of Fidel Castro and to the reemergence of the Mafia on the island after the coup by Batista in 1952. You've heard just a little bit about this man in the last several episodes on Cuba, this man Fidel Castro. Now, we focus in the next several episodes on Castro himself, his background, and his ascendancy to power, beginning in about 1952 or so, After we have a short discussion in this first episode about the reemergence of the mafia. I'm happy to say there are no wanders today, and we're getting right into the meat of the episode. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 130 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. It's hard to overestimate the sting of the blow that occurred when just 2 weeks after the fact, just 2 weeks after Batista had stolen the government through a coup d'etat that the US would recognize Batista as the legitimate leader having a legitimate government in power within Cuba. It is a moment that many people who were there in Cuba at the time would never forget. It was in short a kick in the teeth by the United States government to the citizens of Cuba. Look, there are many reasons why the United States might have moved so quickly to do what they did. There were many political considerations, and there certainly was a question of how to protect U.S. interests on the island, and that is always best done without chaos intervening. But what was right and just, is not always in line with the practical political considerations of the day. There were a lot of hopes dashed within Cuba as a result of the coup d'etat. Batista had canceled the elections, and there was a young man, Fidel Castro, from the Orthodoxy Party, who was on his way to being a member of Congress. Only, there wasn't one now. Now there was no election, and there was no Congress for him to be a part of. As Castro quickly took a series of steps against the seizure of the government, his standing in opposition began to be noticed. Something to be said for this young man in his early 20s. It was just three days after the coup that Castro would begin circulating a crudely mimeographed pamphlet on the streets of Havana. In it, he would say that Batista's military coup is not a revolution, but a brutal snatching of power that these men are not patriots but destroyers of freedom, usurpers, adventurers, thirsty for gold and power. And you, Batista, who basically escaped for four years and for three engaged in useless politicking, appear now with your tardy, unsettling, and poisonous remedy making shreds of the Constitution. Once again, the military boots from Camp Columbia dictating decrees removing and appointing ministers, once again the tanks roaring threateningly in our streets, once again brute force ruling over human reason. There is nothing as bitter in the world as the spectacle of a people that goes to bed free and wakes up in slavery. Well, it's important to understand the early beginnings of Castro's revolutionary core. The words you just heard that were sitting in a pamphlet rolling around Havana some three days after a coup by Batista. They don't sound like the radical words of a communist. They sound more like an ordinary citizen whose government has been seized by a military officer. This is one of the most important aspects to understand about the early days of Fidel's arrival on the scene and the things he said and the communications that made their way into the public venue and then ultimately over the airwaves and finally into the hearts and minds of the American people over time as they assessed the circumstance in Cuba and the response to it by this new man on the scene, Castro. But the Fidel that was present in 1952 was hardly the Fidel present in 1960, and certainly not the Fidel present in 1963. Leaders evolve, regardless of whether it's for the better or the worse, and in Fidel's case, it took some time for things to matriculate. Let's face it, the world is a complex place, and it's just important to know that this is where he started. The high-profile takeover was about politics and control at the moment it happened. There is no doubt that most people didn't understand the implications of Batista's takeover as it related to the mob at that moment in the incredible criminal partnership that was just beginning to blossom. But there were other complexities in the world that were happening at just about the same time, some of which you have already heard about if you go back to our episodes that discuss the Kafaver Commission, and that happened just about the time that Batista was taking over in Cuba. From the mob's perspective, despite the good news regarding Batista and the coup, well, the mob was starting to get clobbered back in the States, and it was as a result of the high-profile kafaver meetings. Lansky's not-so-high-profile gambling establishments that were heretofore operating under the radar were now being shut down, and he was now being vigorously pursued on criminal charges under a circumstance that might very well result in his indictment. He was facing criminal charges in two states, including New York, and at the end of the day, after the Kefauver Commission meetings were over, the assessment which came out of the commission findings was that Lansky was just a bad guy. As Lansky turned his attention to the potentially lucrative things that were happening in Cuba with Batista coming to power, He would, at the same time, have to fend off real issues domestically, including charges in New York and federal IRS charges. Eventually, these would be dealt with, but it was complicated. Mobsters don't like trials, and neither did Lansky, and so on the charge in New York, he would eventually agree to plead guilty in order to avoid a trial. Lansky was eventually going to jail. We'll get to that in a minute. As luck would have it, no pun intended, there was some interesting things happening just around the same time in Cuba. One of the most spectacular nightclubs in Havana, the San well, it was located in a Havana suburb of Marianao. Interestingly enough, one night an attorney from Los Angeles strode into Havana and made his way into the casino at the San His name was Dana Smith he started playing a game called Cubalo, which is an eight-dice variation on craps. Down in Cuba, this particular game was among a group of games classified as the Razzle Dazzle. That's a term used to describe various games that were conjured up by the local gambling casinos and that were confusing enough in their rules. And this obfuscation actually made it fairly easy to fleece the average tourist. And to top it off with a razzle-dazzle, as was quite often the case, there were people in the crowd that kept urging gamblers on. They would urge Smith on, and in this case, they kept telling him that he just needed to keep doubling his bet and that you couldn't lose and eventually you would win. That's the way the game works. I guess there is a sucker born every minute. Well, in Smith's case, that's what he kept doing. Only it didn't work this time, like the soothsayers in the crowd described. Counselor Smith would rack up a gambling debt that night of about $42,000 in total while he was there at the San Susi. Probably not that unusual for a high roller from the States to come in, plunk that kind of money down. Although in current dollars, that was a serious amount of cash and then, rather disappointingly, go home. But, go home with all the good times and accoutrements that come with it from being in Havana. But as I said, Smith was not your ordinary gambler. He happened to be a financial advisor to Richard Nixon. (laughs) That's right, Richard Nixon. In the overall scheme of things, the razzle-dazzle and basically stealing money from tourists It had been going on for a long time in Cuba at the casino tables. It was pretty much standard operating procedure. It was more than just the house having better odds. It turns out that in those days, there would be rotating contracts to run the gambling operation at these hotel casinos. And in this particular year, it was being run by a guy named Norman Rothman out of Miami Beach. Rothman was a well-known nightclub operator in Miami. When Dana Smith didn't pay his gambling debt to the San Susi, what happened to him is what happened to most people who didn't pay up. No, they didn't break his kneecaps. His debt got assigned to a debt collector. It was assigned to the Beverly Credit Services of California. The collection agency would file a lawsuit against Smith. In turn, Smith would contact Richard Nixon. And in turn, Richard Nixon would write a letter, and that letter went straight to the U.S. State Department. The letter would ask them to look into and launch an investigation around what happened to be fraudulent and deceptive practices by the casinos in Cuba for the express purpose of fleecing those that were gambling there, and particularly this was impactful to U.S. citizens. Well, the State Department contacted its embassy in Havana, and the U.S. Embassy then embarked on an investigation under the allegation that Havana gambling was rife with scams and illegalities. This thing would morph into a typical diplomatic and political matter. On a practical basis, Smith would seek examples where the public had been fleeced and attempted to use those examples in a highly publicized media campaign in order to help with his own defense in the collection case. The political implications of this within U.S.-Cuba relations were accelerating as a result of this one incident. Well, what happened next may sound like a fox-in-the-henhouse move, but President Batista knew he had to take real action, as this was an event that had scandal written all over it. At one point, it got so bad that there was talk that the corruption was so deep in the casinos, that the government might have to shut the casinos completely down for the upcoming season. Well, just as this circumstance was about to ripen, he would tap his old friend on the shoulder, Meyer Lansky. Lansky may not have been well thought of after the Kefauver hearings, but he was well known and he was well respected for his gambling expertise, and Batista now wanted him to come back to the island and clean things up when you're the dictator on a Caribbean island, you can do just that. It's good to be the king. So he asked Lansky, and Lansky would oblige. Lansky's job was to put the kibosh on razzle-dazzle wherever it was within the Cuban gambling scene. It's a bit of an irony that they would ask a mafioso to come back and fix that kind of a problem. But he did, and he did it well and one of the first things he did was to import some of his most important table crews from his now defunct Greenacres Club in Florida. He would begin to make the operational changes, but there was still important and very public political moves that needed to be made, that is, in order to restore the confidence in the gaming industry in Cuba. Well, Batista would use his intelligence services to identify at least 13 dealers and other workers that the government believed were crooked. (laughs) It was a great PR play as they marched military personnel into the casinos and publicly arrested these individuals. It made for good press, and it was helpful in getting past this political moment related to the scandals. There were various things written about all of this, including an interesting article in the Saturday Evening Post which was published near the end of Lansky's first year back in Cuba. They would publish an expose on gambling in Cuba and highlight the mob's involvement. At the end of the season, Lansky would return to New York to face the felony charge there. And on May 22, 1953, Lansky would enter a final plea of guilty to the gambling charges he had been facing in upstate New York. He was sentenced to three months in jail and charged with a small fine of $2,500. Lansky would exercise every day he was in jail, and he would read a copy of the King James Bible, a copy that he had brought with him. It's an interesting choice of reading material for a Jewish mobster. Perhaps he only read the portions related to the Old Testament. Okay, that was a mini-wander. What's really interesting, and the reason we're telling this story about Lansky's technical return and reunification with Batista is that it was a watershed event in more than one way. It would usher in the increased involvement of key underworld leaders who came roaring back to the forefront on the island at about the same time. The same time as this criminal web was reemerging with Batista's control and Lansky's return. The first of these characters was a guy named Amadeo Barletta Barletta, and he was a significant player in business and financial services on the island. He would soon emerge as a major conduit by which the American mobsters would launder their money through his bank, Banco Atlantic. These characters all have very colorful paths, all of which are fun to explore, but it's a wander that we'll avoid at this moment. The second character is one that should be well known to many JFK assassination buffs. His name is Rolando Masferer. Masferer is one of the most interesting characters in the play. He actually started out as a communist, seeking to overthrow the dictatorship of Gerardo Machado in the 1930s, the same one we've mentioned in an earlier episode. Masferer would eventually morph into a political hitman and he would eventually grow to be a rival of Fidel Castro in the 1940s. There are at least two documented assassination attempts that Mass Ferrer made on Castro's life. In return, Castro would send a hitman to assassinate Mass Ferrer. It didn't work. Doesn't that sound like a familiar theme in the JFK assassination? Well, more to come on that, of course. But anyway please do remember this point of retaliation by our character, Fidel. Mass Ferrer was a character that was notable. He was sort of a sexy, swashbuckling Cuban with a dash of Texan in him. He was a man of unforgettable style, and it was not unusual to see him running around in a Cadillac convertible that had been converted into a killing machine with mounted machine guns for that purpose. He was a gangster at the height of the gangsterismo period of politics in Cuba. And he did some things in typical gangster style. He was known to have applied muscle to commercial establishments for the purpose of collecting bribes, not unlike what might have happened in New York. Each of the establishments were forced to pay tribute to him. Sounds like an old-world movie. And he was not above dabbling in politics as well, he was elected to the Cuban Senate as a representative from the Oriente province. And of course, you have to own your own propaganda machine, and his was a magazine named Tiempo Tiempo Cuba. He would use it primarily to make attacks on his political enemies. As MassFarer's own criminal enterprise matriculated, he would eventually come to be the head of a group called Las Tigres, or the Tigers, which consisted of what was essentially a private army of approximately 1,500 men by the time the election rolled around in 1952. And at that moment, Mass. Ferrer put his men solidly and silently behind Batista. After the coup, Mass. Ferrer and the Tigers would become a supplementary private army of the private government of Batista. Or perhaps, putting it a little bit more bluntly, Batista would have his own internal Cuban mafioso group, and it would be Masferrer and his thugs. The island's political elite watched closely as Batista began to assemble elements of the ruling class that would be critical to attracting the outside capital that would be absolutely necessary to build the vision that they all knew would be coming under Batista. In a place like Cuba in the 1950s, there was a small circle of people who were in the inner power circle, who could influence or even drive things because of the economic influence and power that they possessed on the island. In some ways, it was no different than it is anywhere else, even today. But back then, the power structure was ever so concentrated. And these are the kind of power structures that exist really in plain sight, but behind the veneer that society places on them, so to speak. In Cuba's case, it was a curious mix of U.S. and other international industrialists. Then there was the local sugar barons. And then there were those that controlled major portions of the tourism business. And, of course, there is always the influence of the bankers and banking interests, as they have significant influence through their direction of capital and in this case, mostly it was international banking interests. Batista would handpick the men required to help build this criminal enterprise of sorts, and of course, Lansky would be in the inner circle of all of it. And then, of course, there was the second coming of the rest of the mobsters. Many who had attended the Havana Conference in 1946 would return, and they would make additional investments in Cuba. Many of them would be significant on the scene, but there would be none more influential than Santos Traficante Jr. The Capo Regime at the time from Tampa was the youngest attendee at the 1946 Havana Conference. As we mentioned in our previous episode, Traficante's family had a long experience on the island, starting with his father, Traficante Sr., and he himself spoke fluent Spanish. He didn't have Batista in his pocket like Lansky did. But eventually, Santos Traficante Jr. would become the second most influential American mobster in Cuba. Thank you for listening to episode 130 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.